Thank you, Pastor Peter. My ongoing joke is let's prepare our hearts for the second sermon now. Thank you for the first one. Uh, welcome to the Springs. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Uh, if this is your first Sunday, whether in person or live stream, we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for making the commitment to, to be here in person and join us via live stream. Shout out to everyone watching with us online. We love you and we thank you that you're being here with us. You're not an extension of this service, but you're part of the family. So welcome. Uh, before I move forward with our sermon, I want to I do something real quick. Uh, today is unofficially Volunteer Appreciation Sunday. So I want to take a moment to honor every single volunteer. Thank you so much for making a part of this service happen, from showing up early to setting up the media booth, to chairs, to tents, uh, to welcoming. Thank you so much for, for your service and being a part of making this Sunday service possible. We thank you, and I want to pray just a quick blessing over you. Father, thank you. Thank you for every single volunteer. Thank you, Lord, that they said yes, God, to, to being a part of making this service possible. I pray that you would refresh them, Lord. I pray that you would remind them that their service is not in vain, but it's worship unto you, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to fill them with joy and strength and bless them this Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. All right, so this morning we are, uh, this is week six. We're continuing our series, People of the Way. And today we are back in Acts chapter five. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet to honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read two verses and then read a few more verses later on. But we're going to look at Acts chapter five, verse 40 through 42. Acts chapter five, verse 40 through 42. It says this. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, I, I ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive this word. Lord, I ask that you would make our hearts good soil for this seed to take root, Father. And that this word would grow in our lives and we would be able to put it to practice from this day forward. Lord, I ask the Holy Spirit that you would fill me to proclaim your word and be your witness. In Jesus' name, amen. So we just read a, a peculiar passage in Scripture. It's one of my favorites because I, I love the boldness and the, and, and the confidence uh, and the faithfulness that the apostles have. After being beaten, they leave rejoicing. Uh, it makes absolute no human sense, but there's something supernatural and powerful going on here. But before we dive into that, I want to kind of take a step back and answer this question. How did we get here? What's happening? Uh, before we unpack these two verses, I want to take a moment to recap the series of events that have brought us to this place in the scriptures. So when we're reading through the book of Acts, uh, there are a few events, uh, two in particular, that are really important to have on the forefront of your mind as you read this book. The first one is the crucifixion, and the second one is the resurrection. You see, uh, the crucifixion, when, when the Christian looks at the cross... Uh, they see the means by which 
God himself rescued us from judgment of sin and the wrath of hell. And it's a beautiful display of God's love towards us. Uh, that, that he would take our sin and bring us back into relationship with him. Uh, that he would conquer the shame and guilt and power that sin has over our lives in exchange for our brokenness. I mean, those are just a few things that the scripture teach about the cross. But that's not what they saw. And when I say they, I'm talking about the first century religious political groups and the elites that opposed Jesus. When, when they looked at the cross, or, or crosses for that matter, because they were all over the place, they did not see God's sacrificial lamb. They did not see God's plan to redeem the world unfolding before them. In fact, what they saw was another Roman torture device that they frequently used to put to death criminals and silence rebels that opposed them. Because what is happening in this small nation of Israel is that it's under Roman oppression. And every now and then, some guy would would rise up and say that, that they were sent by God to save the nation, so let's band together and overthrow the government. And this always bothered two groups of people. The first one I already mentioned was the Romans. Why did it bother them? Because Rome liked being in power and oppressing the nation. And they did not like when people would step up and try to disrupt their way of doing things. The second group that it bothered was was the religious elites. They were essentially next in line for power and control. Uh, And and what's what's, what's interesting about them is that they were well-studied. They were well-informed in all matters of Jewish history and religious texts. They were the authority. And so they were not happy when others crossed that authority. In fact, they would be especially upset when someone claimed to be the Messiah. Why? Because they were so well-studied and informed about the scriptures, they knew sort of the prophecies that had to be fulfilled, the events that needed to take place for this guy to be the Messiah. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the Messiah. Very specific ones like the nature of the birth and, and his location. So if someone would claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, uh, they took this very seriously. This was blasphemy. And so when they look at the cross, they see a criminal guilty of blasphemy and a person that was disrupting the status quo. You see, they thought that uh, one of those messiahs was another false teacher, and this is what they thought about Jesus. Here's another guy rising up saying that, that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, sort of disrupting the status quo. And they were especially mad because they thought Jesus was teaching a new thing. And, and this new thing uh, was going to be a threat to their comfort and status quo. But here's what's so amazing about Jesus, is that he wasn't necessarily teaching a new thing. He was actually teaching the original thing. Jesus begins to teach us how we were designed to live and what the meaning of the law actually is. And he says it's summed up in these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And this is the movement that Jesus is leading This is the movement uh, that he's calling us to be a part of. He's calling us to put sin to death, calling us to place faith in him. And these two groups that we mentioned earlier were outraged. You see, they wanted to maintain their way of doing things. 
and they would go as far as putting people to death that stood in their way. And here's what's crazy is that they thought they succeeded. They thought they succeeded in putting Jesus to death, but here's what's amazing. Jesus rose from the dead. And this movement is alive and it's growing. And the same religious elites that opposed Jesus are now opposing his followers. And they were trying to do everything in their power to put an end to this movement. And in the first part of Acts, we see the church is growing while at the same time, opposition is growing. You see, when you claim allegiance to Jesus, you will suffer. Why? Because the same forces that oppose Jesus will oppose you. And Peter and John, two followers of Jesus, are experiencing this opposition in the first part of Acts. You see, they were arrested for preaching about Jesus, and now, in chapter 5, they've been arrested again. And now these religious elites are trying to put this movement to death, and this is where we pick up in the middle of Acts 5. We're going to look at verses 30 through 33. It says this, Peter speaking, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to, this, to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. You see, the same thing is happening all over again. Peter, the former fisherman, now the apostolic leader of the church, is speaking here, and he's getting bold. It's, it's quite humorous, uh, because this wasn't Peter's sort of thing uh, towards the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, he, he cowered it away. He was fearful. Now we see him filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the word of God. And this is the second time he's been on trial, and what's so amazing is that he's consistent with his speech. He gives the same speech in Acts 2 and virtually says the same thing. He says, you killed Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the promised Messiah, and he has the authority to forgive sins and welcomes anyone into his family who turns away from a life of practicing sin. Now, this is significant because what he is essentially saying is that the temple is no longer the sole place to experience God's presence. When Peter says that the Holy Spirit is given to all those who obey him, this would outrage the religious elites. Why? Because for them, the temple was the place to experience God's presence. Now what Peter is saying is that humans have become living temples. That now God's empowering presence resides within his creation. And the Holy Spirit comes to fill those who place faith in Jesus and practice a lifestyle of obedience to God. This is the type of communion and access we have. And so they were enraged. And for a few good reasons. I mean, they were young. Uh, Historians speculate that they're probably like mid-20s, maybe not even into their 30s. Um, and, And so you're... These guys are are speaking down to some old heads in the temple saying, you've got it wrong. That's pretty frustrating. And now they're telling them that that the way they're doing things is, is, is useless. They were furious, and they wanted to kill Peter and John. 
So let's keep reading. We just read verse 3. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. We pick up in verse 34, and this is what it says. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So everyone's arguing back and forth, trying to figure out, hey, can we just put these guys to death right now? And Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, one of the highest religious elites in all the land, when he spoke, people got quiet. He had that type of authority. And this is what he said in verse 35. Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Verse 36. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. And so this is what we talked about earlier. Uh, Rome, uh, Israel is oppressed by Rome. And every now and then, somebody would rise up and say, let's overthrow the government. Let's rebel against this nation and fight for our freedom. And, and, and he's referencing one of the guys that did just that. His name was Theodos. He rose up. Hundreds have joined him. And this is what happened. He was killed. And all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. He gives another example. He says, uh, what about Judas, the Galilean? He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them be alone. For if, it, if this is the plan or the undertaking of man, it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. This is so rich. He's essentially saying that if this is not God's plan, it's going to fail. It's going to fizzle out. Why have more blood on our hands? We saw how it played out with Theodos. We saw how it played out with this guy named Judas. Uh, They wrangled a bunch of people together, and and now uh, no one knows about them. Nothing has come out of it. But then he says something so profound, something so mature and so wise. He says, but if it is of God... There is nothing you can do to stop them. In fact, you might even be found opposing God. And so he must have said this with a good sense of confidence. He he must have been thinking there's no point in killing them because this is just another fade. It'll pass by because he was confident that Jesus wasn't the Messiah as all the other religious elites were. So he ordered them not to be killed but to be severely beaten. The type of beating that would inflict a sense of fear and hopefully silence them knowing they were on the verge of death if they took one more bad step. The the type of beating that you get when you're a kid and your mom gives you those eyes and you just know, I'm not going to cross her. I'm not going to do it again. This time's a thousand. The idea was that that they thought they would hopefully leave and, and, and the apostles, the followers of Jesus would come to their senses and say, All right, it's been a good run, but I don't want to go through that again. But that's not what happens. We continue reading, and we pick back up in verse 40, and it says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease 
teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Wow. There is a lot that can be said about this passage, but I I have three takeaways from this portion of Scripture. Or better yet, three practices that, that I want us to do this week. Number one is rest. Number two is rejoice. And number three is abide. Let's talk about rest for a moment. Rest. Rest specifically in God's sovereignty. Rest specifically in God's sovereignty. This is what fueled the early church. I I love this moment of excitement. It's strange, but it's so pure. They were excited because they were experiencing the same opposition Jesus experienced, and everything that Jesus said would happen is happening to them, so they broke out into worship. And and this moment closely resembles one in Acts chapter 4. After they were arrested the first time, they were released, and this is what they said in Acts chapter 23, verse 31. I'm going to quickly read it. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage rage, and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever in your hand and your plan you had predestined to take place. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. And while you stretched out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They have just come out of this moment of opposition, great persecution. They're sharing it with their friends. And the first thing they do is they break out into worship and begin to praise God and say, Lord, let me not be slowed down or hindered by this, but please let boldness rise up in my heart so I can continue to proclaim your name and truth. And this is a really, really special moment because it mirrors another significant prayer found in the Old Testament under similar circumstances that this prayer is drawn from. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah is thrown in jail. In response uh, to all that happened, uh, the the people opposed him, so they threw him in jail. And this is what he prays in, in, in chapter 32, verse 17. He says, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I love another translation. Nothing is too difficult for thee. You see, the key phrase, based on the fact that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that he's sovereign over everything, is nothing is too difficult for thee. You can rest in the fact that God who creates all things could also control them. 
I love the way Paul Tripp puts it, one of my favorite authors. He says, everything that is outside of your control lives under the control of the Savior who gave his life for you. Everything that is outside of your control lives under the control of the Savior who gave his life for you. Rest in God's sovereignty. He is in control. Trust him. And I know this is difficult. In a world full of unrest, it's difficult to rest. And yet God has it all handled. We can trust God like no one else because he is in control. God rules and reigns and he is working all things out for the good of those who love God. We can rest in God's sovereignty. Second thing, rejoice. Verse 40 through 41, and and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, don't read into this and and think the apostles were, were masochists and loved being punished, and they were gluttonous after this. That is not what's happening here. In this moment, they are realizing that what Jesus said about them, about experiencing persecution, is actually happening to them. And if they're worthy to suffer like Jesus and with Jesus, then they were likewise counted worthy to enter into glory with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.17 puts it this way, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Suffering for Jesus is a momentary affliction. Suffering for Jesus is a momentary affliction compared to the glory of being with Jesus forever. And that glory far outweighs all of our present troubles. And the disciples knew this and it moved them to experience joy. I love this definition of joy from Holman's Bible Dictionary, an awesome resource I recommend uh, everyone owns. This is what Holman says, uh, one of the articles. Joy is the state of delight and well-being that results from knowing and serving God. I love that. That joy is the fruit of right relationship with God. It is not something that we create by our own efforts. Rather, it is a gift from God that we experience as we are in relationship with Him. You see, the dark sorrows that we experience in life are giving way to great joys. And how do I know this? Because when I look at the dark sorrow of the cross... I see how it gave way to the great joy of the resurrection. And the dark sorrows in our life are giving way to something purposeful and redemptive. Therefore, we do not lose heart. God is in control. I want to invite you to practice delighting and rejoicing in the Lord, commanding your soul, as the psalmist says, to worship God and remind yourself that God is good and he is in control. Joy in the Christian life is in direct proportion as believers walk with the Lord. They can rejoice because they are in the Lord. Joy is a fruit of a spirit-led life. And sin 
in a believer's life robs us of joy. Now this brings us to our third practice, abide. The followers of Jesus walked in joy because they walked with the Lord. And even those who stood in direct opposition knew this. When we look at Acts 4, chapter, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read this a few weeks ago. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now what's so interesting is that when we look at John chapter 14, um, towards the middle of John, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. And one of the things that he talks about in John chapter 14 is the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says that, 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 that when I leave, a helper will come, and it's actually better that I leave so that you can receive the helper, so that you can receive the same empowering presence that I have will abide and rest in you. And they see that promise received in Acts chapter 2. And then we get to John chapter 15, and this is what Jesus says. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away and withers. And the branches that are gathered are thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I love this because he says that if anyone does not abide in me, they wither. They dry up. Now, church, I I don't know about you, but this week was sort of a withering, dry week for me. And, and, and I looked through my week, and, and, and I mean, I've had a pretty good week. I ate some pretty good food. My son's being extra cute and fun. Um, things have been pretty easy on the schedule. But, but I've, I come uh, to the weekend, and I just feel dry and withered. And, I, and I'm brought to this place in John 15, and I'm reminded that, that if I don't abide in the Lord, how easy it is to feel spiritually dry, to, to feel withered. And I think what's so amazing about the scripture is that, that, that Jesus doesn't make it too difficult for us to come experience refreshment. He doesn't make it too hard for us to come be refilled and refueled. And in fact, I, I took a moment yesterday and, and, and I just had some extended worship, did the things that I like to do, listened to some of my favorite sermons all over again, got in the word, and I felt like I was just back to normal. That's what Jesus invites us to. He doesn't invite us to to get all of our stuff figured out uh, and go back through our week and and make our wrongs right. He just invites us to be with him, to lay down our lives and embrace him. And as we commune with him, it says that we experience much fruit. And here's what's so amazing. We continue reading in verse 11, and it says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God desires for you to have a joy-filled life, and that comes from abiding in Him. God is not a killjoy. He's not robbing you from things that, that you think give you joy. He's trying to give you the fullness of joy that comes from being in relationship with Him. And the followers of Jesus, they were formed by Jesus and filled with Jesus because they'd been with Jesus. And the joy of Jesus was inside of them because they knew Jesus. And they were not surprised by the forces that opposed them they worshipped. And they were seeing God's promise fulfilled in their life. 
that just as they had opposed Jesus, they will oppose us. But Jesus says, take heart, because he has overcome the world. They were not formed by the culture. They were not formed by politics. They were not formed by societal pressures. They were not formed by their coworkers. They were formed by the person of Christ. And as a result, they influence and change the people around them, change the culture around them, and change the world they lived in. Why? Because they were with Jesus. They practiced a life of abiding with him. They never ceased teaching and preaching and worshiping the name of Jesus. So going into this week, you can rest You don't have to grasp for control and have every detail figured out. You don't have to work and overextend yourself to make a difference and see personal transformation. Here we go. Holy Spirit. You don't have to strive to make things happen and see breakthrough in your life. You can abide in Jesus and experience his presence, and experience fruit in your life that comes from obedience and being in communion with him. Why? Because God has made a way for you to find life, rest, and joy in Christ. And this is God's good gift to you. So what do you need to put to rest so that you can rest in Christ? What do you need to walk away from so you can walk with Christ, abide with him, and experience his joy? What I want to do is I want to take a moment, and I want to believe that what happened in Acts 4, when it says that the room was shaken and the believers were filled with boldness, I want to pray with confidence that it's going to happen right now. Now, you may not see this room physically shaken, but I believe God's is going to shake some things up in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. Things that need to be removed and replaced with confidence and trust and faith in him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we worship you. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, nothing is too difficult for thee. And Lord, we just proclaim that promise over our life. Over the things that keep us restless, we say that that thing is not too difficult for thee. Over the addictions in our life that rob us of joy, we proclaim that that addiction is not too difficult for thee. Over the distractions and the social media, uh, And all the things that we would rather abide with, that we are so gripped by, Lord, we declare that it is not too difficult for you to step in that place, captivate our minds, and fill our hearts with all. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come shake our hearts, shake our minds. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come take the the seat on the throne of our hearts and help us go into this week and practice these rhythms of resting, rejoicing, and abiding with you. In Jesus' name, amen.